Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1993 film Three Colors Blue. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, I, I, I I thought a lot about Trilogy uh, as we were preparing for this. And one of the reasons why it's helpful that this movie uh, is part of a trilogy is that, that if this movie were just called Blue, it would be it would, the, the search engine optimization would be really rough. But the fact that you can always write three colors blue helps a lot. Yes, <laughs> you're, you're, uh, you're right. I, I made the mistake when I went into Rotten Tomatoes to look at some reviews. I just put in blue. And yes, it's it's amazing how many movies are called blue, some of which are truly blue movies that we wouldn't want to be watching. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, so what is your history with this film? You know, it came out in 93 when actually I was uh, I was in England at the time leading uh, leading uh, England term with with Bethel students. So I did not see it when it came out, but I was certainly aware of it. Um, I was aware of Kieslowski at the time. I knew about the double life of Veronica, although I hadn't seen it. So it, it kind of so I kind of knew it by reputation and I caught up with it um, would have been on video probably the next year. So. Uh... Who who is Christoph Kislowski? I mean, that, that was one of these things where I, I, one thing I want to say about this movie, and I'll talk about my history uh, with it in a minute, is um, I was very careful when I was trying to read about this film. So I read far less than I normally do because so many of the pieces were about the trilogy and i kind of wanted to look at this film on its own so i read more kind of contemporary reviews of it because Mm -hmm. most anything later on is talking about all of them and i wanted to i wanted to save white and red i wanted to look at blue on its own um so i don't really know much about kieslowski for that reason because it was i didn't want to i didn't want to dive too deep in and and learn stuff that i wasn't i didn't want to know yet yeah well you know kieslowski is um Kind of, he had he had an increasingly important international reputation as his career went along. He's a even though the film is in French, I guess we should point out he's a Polish filmmaker. So he is our first Polish uh, filmmaker. He went to the same school, film school in uh, in Poland that Roman Polanski went to, for example. Um, and he starts out actually earlier in his career. He starts out as as kind of a documentary filmmaker. Uh, and then he was part of a kind of a brief movement in, in Polish film called the cinema, often called the cinema of moral anxiety or the cinema of moral descent. And that was really, those were films that were kind of semi-documentaries that were focused on some of the social, political, moral issues raised by Poland being a communist state, which is really interesting because one of the things that people point out about, about Blue, as well as the other films in the trilogy, that These are films that take these large political ideas, in the case of Blue Liberty, but see them through a very personal lens. And so it's interesting, Kieslowski starts out as this very kind of socially engaged filmmaker, but he becomes increasingly, not individualistic is the right word, it's more, he's worried about, I mean, not not individualistic in a selfish sense, but he's, he's concerned about the individual, but also the individual's relation to society and ultimately to God. Um, his real big breakthrough in terms of international reputation is um, the three uh, short one-hour films that make up Decalogue. Uh, Decalogue was originally shot for Polish TV or for German TV, um, and it's um, each of the films has some relationship to one of the Ten Commandments. It's actually a little unclear if you watch it. There's a lot of debate about exactly which commandment is this about or how is it about this commandment, which is sort of a typical Kozlowski um, uh, question. Anyway, that's that's the, that, the collection of those 10 films really kind of made his reputation. And then the double life of uh, Veronica with Irene Jakob uh, and then Three Colors. And by the time he gets to Three Colors, he's, he's considered you know, kind of really, really important. Um, I should also point out that he has some connections to the new wave, the French new wave. Um, his producer on this film was, uh, was a Romanian French producer named uh, Marin Carmitz, who also produced Godard, Claude Chabrol, and Louis Mali. And there's some really interesting connections to, especially to Truffaut. Um, both of them died young. Truffaut died at 52. Klazowski was 54. Uh, both of them are famous for, are notorious for having watched Citizen Kane multiple times. I think Truffaut said he watched it 40. Uh, Kieslowski said he watched it 100. Um, and there's there's other similarities that I'll get into when we talk about white, actually. I don't want or, or red. I don't want to get into that right now. But anyway, so he he's definitely, you know, he's not a French filmmaker, but he has these kind of new wave 
uh, associations. There's also ways in which this, in which Juliet Binoche's character uh, in this film is kind of similar to uh, Anna Karina in Godard's My Life to Live, another interesting film to pair it with. Um, you you mentioned this, but like, what uh, what is his relationship to religion? Because I was curious about this. You talk about the Decalogue having some, mm-hmm. you know, some connection to the Ten Commandments. This film, when you get to the end and you get, you know, that the the text of the at least the part of the concert for the unification of Europe is. I mean, it's First uh, Corinthians First Corinthians thirteen. That seems to weigh very heavy. Now you can use all of those things and not be particularly religious yourself. Yeah. They can still have power because I mean, First Corinthians thirteen is really about the importance of love, and love is not the sole domain of religion. But I'm curious, you know, especially growing up in uh, communist Poland, I'm sort of curious. Like, and I know, I know that the the at least the Catholic Church remained uh, uh, having a presence in communist Poland. Um, do you know anything about his religious connections, his religious background? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know a lot, Sam. I don't think, as far as I can tell, that he was um, kind of uh, typically religious. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that he was a churchgoer, for, for example. Um, my impression is that he was a religiously and metaphysically curious person who was open to belief, but I'm not sure that he, that he embraced a particular creed. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. I will say this movie we can put on the list of, you know, along with um, uh, put on two lists. We can put it on lists of movies along with like the trial of Joan of Arc um, or debt uh, uh, of gods and men where it's like, oh, these are movies that hum with me particularly. And we're going to get into why that is uh, because there's, there's aspects of the character of Julie that really resonate with me um, quite a bit. It's also on the list of things where, it's not necessarily itself very religious, but I view it through the lens of my personal faith pretty powerfully, you know, in the same way, like I can read Albert Camus, who is decidedly not religious and have religious experiences with that. So, so I, it, it makes this movie very effective uh, for me. So my history with this film, just to sort of fill this in, I actually saw this at Bethel in the nineties. This was, I think it was the 1996, 97 school year. This was shown as part of Bethel Film Forum. Um, so it, it, it may be the first movie movie viewing experience that my wife and I shared, although I don't think we necessarily knew each other. We both were at Film Forum because we've both seen this movie. Um, and I was talking with my wife about it, and she, I did not remember it almost at all, other than the music and some of the look of the film. She is much smarter than me, and she said she remembers everything about the movie, and she was like, wow, this would be a hard movie to rewatch now that I'm a mother. And I was like, well, that's really interesting because I didn't remember anything about what it was about. So I asked her if she or or we have seen white and red. I'm pretty sure I've seen white. Don't remember it at all. I don't think I've seen red. She says she thinks she's seen all three. <laughs> so um, so that that's my history with this film is that I remember if you had asked me in 1996, like, what's a great movie? I would probably have said blue because I didn't have a lot of experience at all with movies. And I'm like, well, I saw this and it seemed pretty great. <laughs> um, I also think I probably fell in love with Juliette Binoche in this movie. Like, like she's, she's quite a presence. Um, and this is a, actually, this is a great movie. If somebody uh, has misgivings about like watching foreign films, because there's not that much said in this movie. Like you can, you know, it's not overwhelmed with dialogue and, and, and there are important things said, but it's not the most, I bet you could watch this without subtitles and still get a pretty good feel for this movie. So um, in that way, I feel like it is truly like an international movie in that way that it's not, it doesn't need to be rooted in like, you need to know this language. Yeah. Uh, sound uh, in, in both sound is so important in this film, uh, obviously in terms of music, but sound dominates in other ways as well. So I think you're right. It's a, it's a film you could appreciate with a lot, without a lot of the dialogue. Um, so this, this, this film is so consciously part of a trilogy. This was the first one that came out, but I mean, when, when this came out, it was announced as part of a trilogy of movies that, I assume he was sort of working on simultaneously to a certain degree. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. He was, in fact, um, the courtroom scene, you know, when Julie, when Julie is, is looking for the, for the lawyer, well, 
we will return to that courtroom scene in white because it's characters in white who are in the courtroom. So yeah, he actually did some of the filming, some of the filming simultaneously. Uh, the trilogy unfolds in uh, in Paris and then uh, and then Warsaw and then Geneva. But he did some of the simul yeah some of the simultaneous yeah. So all these things were kind of being worked on at at the same time. He he did all three films within about a nine month uh, period. Yeah, because I remember Blue coming out, and then I felt like Red and White maybe even came out at the same time or pretty, very close to each other. Pretty close. White was, I think, February, and Red was like April or May, something like that. Yeah, it was very close. Yeah. So, so I want to think about the idea of a trilogy, and I um now, in we we live in a world where the word trilogy and movie you tend to think of like franchise filmmaking you know your star wars trilogies or mm. at one time indiana jones was a trilogy or you know you think i like oh you know or christopher nolan's dark knight trilogy so like it seems like a like a a way to package franchises this mm. is obviously not that um but i was thinking i mean the idea of a trilogy goes back at least to the ancient greeks i mean if you look at uh sophocles aeschylus euripides right they're writing uh they're writing trilogies of plays um, so since I have an English professor here, what is the significance of a trilogy, like, like of, of sort of three movements like that to tell a story? Because there does seem to be some kind of power in that. And I realize this movie is not, is thematically a trilogy. Like, I don't think we're going to see Juliette Binoche show up in, you know, white and red in any significant way. Um, so it's not like it's the further adventures of, you know, of Julie, but, but that, what is the significance of, of i'm trying to not say what is the significance of three but i kind of do mean that like like is there what is the draw to that because that seems to be this thing i think the most obvious answer um sam is that a trilogy provides you with the basic structure of a beginning a middle and an end uh and i think that's why trilogies can be challenging right because because just as you think about a story right you know the, the the middle is the part where a story can sag so the challenge of a trinity uh, of a trilogy is how do you have both a beginning, a middle, and an end that work together as a, a whole? But then how is it within each of those they each have their own structure as a complete story? Uh, and I think what's different about what Kislowski is doing, somewhat different from what's happening in some of the trilogies you named, is that um, each of these movies stands on its own. Um, you don't need to have seen the others in order to appreciate each of these. I'm not sure that's true with some of the other film trilogies you've mentioned. They, so, so it's both because you have this structure of beginning, middle, end, but then you also have this independent structure. And that's because the genius of the trilogy is based on the colors of the French flag mm -hmm. and liberty, equality, fraternity. And what's interesting is Kieslowski said that was that was probably arbitrary. He said if he'd had another producer, if it had been a German producer, he would have done the colors of the German flag. <laughs> so, but 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 since he's basing the trilogy on those on those concepts, right? And then and then you can argue, of course, a lot of people argue over well, how is this about liberty? How is this about fraternity? How is this about equality? But that's what gives it both a a unity and at the same time an independence of each of those each of those elements. I mean, you could argue, you know, the French flag, they pick liberty, equality, fraternity. You could have picked three other values if you wish. So in a sense, that's kind of arbitrary. But once you pick them, then you have structure. Yeah. I, I one of the things I wrote in my note, I wrote this question and then I sort of started to answer it myself. I said, is this movie enhanced by being part of a trilogy? And I think it is. I think even if this is the only one you see, because that's, mo like I said, mostly my memory is I never got around to seeing the other two. But I remember watching this and instantly being excited by the idea of, oh, I want to see the one on equality. I want to see the one on fraternity. Um, I also think it it helps to introduce, as you said, this idea that this movie has a theme, but this movie is also going to be in conversation with some other themes and some other films. So I feel like even the even if he never made the other two, the promise of the other two enhances this and makes me watch this in a different way. Because even when I watched this in 1996, before I started watching it, I was already thinking about the notion of liberty when it started as opposed to 
watching the movie and say, you know what I think this movie's about, or somebody telling me it's about it afterwards, that it starts very consciously because we're sort of told as part of this project that that is going to be a theme here. I think that that affects the way I watch this movie and positively, I think it enhances the way I watch this movie. It gives me a little bit of direction or preface to say like, here's something to pay attention to. Cause otherwise I might've missed parts of that. And well, the other thing I want to say that's really interesting about this as a trilogy based on those themes is that, and you'll notice this as we go along that, Kislowski's um, style is different in each film. Um, and each film, uh, in a sense, is in a particular generic mode that it kind of resists a little bit. So some people have called Blue an anti-tragedy. Uh, they've called White an anti-comedy. And they've called Red an anti-romance. Because it has elements of each of those genres, but it does them in little, a little bit of a different way. I mean, one thing you have to say about about Blue is it's not a it's not a predictable plot. Uh, in fact, there's really not much of a plot at all. Um, I mean, there's a definite movement. There's a definite logic to the way the film is structured. I have no I have no difficulty telling you that the film has a very clear structure, but it's not exactly the way you expect. You, you can tell ahead of time exactly how the character is going to move through. And I also should mention that the other film that we also watched maybe a year and a half, two years ago, that came out in 93, dealing with surviving a crash, was, of course, Fearless. Um, and it's interesting to pair those two films as characters dealing with the aftermath of, of death in, a, in an accident. Barrett, if we were in the same room, I would just give you a big high five. You just walked right up to where I wanted to go with this. And I have fearless in my notes as well. Um, Cause my, the next thing I wrote was this has such an interesting setup structure. If you think about this movie as around the theme of Liberty and especially Liberty of a woman, right? If you had told me that was what it was going to be about. I, there's like natural things that, that I would have expected. So I wrote down two expectations I had for this movie mm. that it doesn't, that it doesn't do. It doesn't start with a woman who seems like she's in a trapped state. So there's this sense of like, now it, she may be, but we don't get a picture of it. Right. We, cause, cause it would make sense if we like saw her in this terrible situation. And it is a movie then about her being liberated or liberating herself from that. Now, again, this may be that, but it's so interesting that this starts with the car accident. So we don't really ever get much of a picture of Julie's life before the accident. So we don't know. We don't fully know what she's getting liberated from. I mean, there's all these questions you could ask, like, was her marriage a happy marriage? Well, I don't really know. Um, we know that it was definitely a troubled marriage by the end or there was there it was complicated but we don't know that at the beginning and 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 uh julius is the performance is so beautifully blank that there's moments where you're just like i don't know how she's responding to something entirely because it's so and not blank it's so internal mm -hmm. and you're trying to read that sort of the internal nature of that right um so so i just love that 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 if you were going to do the basic version of this, like in your head, you can script it out. And instead he jumps to the car accident and then you see her reaction to that reaction to that loss. Um, but, but again, that, that, I mean, like, like I, I think about things like, did Julie have, did she have friends in her, in her life before the car accident? Because we see her, kind of cutting ties and putting her house in order before she goes to Paris, but it's really only with like a few people and they're in, and, and they are people who, I mean, Olivier worked with her husband and they obviously have a, some sort of relationship. And then it's the people who are essentially, I mean, the gardener and the cook or the maid, but, but, but it's like, does, does Patrice not have family? Does, do they not have friends? Like, like you don't see any of that. So we're getting this like very particular picture and I'm not saying any of these things as criticism. I think this is really a great way to push you into this and make you think, think about this as a story about Liberty. So here, here's the thing that I said, and then I'm going to hand the ball back off to you. Um, it's interesting that this is a story that starts with loss, you know, this, this um, catastrophic accident and loss, um, but I don't 
entirely know if this is a story about grief. I mean, it, it kind of is. So, so, okay. So here's something I wrote in my notes and then I don't necessarily agree with it. So last night as I was writing notes, I said, where are there? There's not the like typical five stages of grief, like denial, mm-hmm. anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, except they might be there, <laughs> you know, that they might be there. But again, it's such an internal performance that it's like, if you wanted to pick this, this movie apart, like she's definitely responding and trying to f- figure out what life looks like now, but it's not in any of the traditional kind of um, maybe uh, typical ways you would, if you were like reading a book on story structure about us, you know, somebody dealing with loss, there's all these things you could say, well, you can have them do this and that can give you structure, but, but uh, Kieslowski doesn't do that. And I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I I think the structure he creates is um, liberty as um, well, initially, liber- liberty as an extreme response to loss. Okay, so I've lost my husband, I've lost my child, I've lost everything. So I am going to empty myself of everything. So I'm going to sell. All, I'm going to sell the house. I'm going to sell all the possessions. I'm going to get rid of my name. I'm going to go back to my maiden name. I'm going to become anonymous and basically live as much as possible detached from everything. So, so, so it's, it's liberty as a kind of a negative state, right? It's a, it's a state of, of detachment and, and denial and a kind of, um, a, a kind of ascetic existence in, in, a, in a way. And we tend to think of liberty as sort of a celebration of freedom, but here liberty is more, it's, it's a kind of a trap in a way that she's allowing herself to fall into. So, so I think that's, that's the first movement in the film, which is the movement away from an effort to define liberty and experience liberty as independence from any, any connection. And she says that at one point in the film, right? She says, those are traps, you know, relationships are traps. And that's what she wants to get out of. And then well, the, she says, then, she says, I have nothing left. To, I have nothing left to do, but not, or all I have left to do is nothing. Is nothing, which actually is really interesting. <laughs> when Kislowski retired after making red, he said, all he wanted to do was sit in his chalet, smoke and read. So, so I, I think maybe there's certain elements of, 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 uh, of Julie and him here as well. So, you know, so she tries to get herself to this negative zero point. You know, I, I don't have any connection to anybody. But then what happens, of course, is life starts to draw her back, right? So it's the woman in the stairs below. It's seeing that guy beaten up in the alley. It's the connection with Antoine who found the, the cross. It's her connection to Lucille. And so then, and, and of course, that, that, that then you get moved all the way back to the, the, the end of the film with the, you know, the whole point of that Corinthians passage is these relationships with each other. And that closing montage, which I haven't seen anybody say this, but that closing montage that to me um, is, a, uh, is, is a kind of um, uh, anticipation of uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, his title is just Magnolia. Yes, thank you, Magnolia. Um, I think that montage kind of anticipates Magnolia. So that's that's a different kind of liberty, right? That's 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 the that's the freedom of those the freedom that those relationships allow you in terms of expressing your emotion, in terms of sharing your life with other people. And so that closing image of her in tears which are both joy and sorrow at the same time i think that's how kislowski is kind of playing with this with this idea of of liberty that it can be disconnection but it also ultimately has to be about making making these connections to others yeah i i i'm i'm really excited that you said the word asceticism because i looked at this this movie as like there's ways to view this movie as about monasticism, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is something that I'm very interested in. I, I lived with monks for a year. Like, 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 so there is this, there is, I mean, I, I kept thinking about like Anthony of Egypt during the beginning of this movie, literally like selling all of your possessions and going off, you know, and he, she doesn't go into the desert. She goes into Paris, mm-hmm. which is a much more fun place to be than the desert. <laughs> but like, like, you know, it's, it, it it's in, it's interesting to you know it, it, to pair that with the Corinthians passage because there is this thing when you think about like desert monks you know there is this sense and because whenever I teach this to students who are not coming from a Catholic tradition so monasticism is very foreign to them anyhow 
there is always this sense of like, well, what good does that do anyone to go out and live in the desert by yourself? Now, I could make some cases that it does, but but I think my students are on to something that there is like, like, like is is there not something missing? And and what I what I love about that Corinthians passage is it it is sort of saying like one of the things you could say to somebody who is taking on this extreme solitary ascetic position is like, you may have this, you may have this, but do you have love? Mm-hmm. Like, 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 like is, are, is that something you have cut yourself off from? And if you have none of these other things matter, you may have the fortitude to live in, um, to live in, in total uh, isolation. You may have the faith or the power to create great art, but, if you don't have love to do, do all those things fade. And so like, I actually think this is a, this is a very interesting movie for, for a person like me who has a, a particular draw to monasticism. Um, now, one thing I was also thinking about, and I'm just going to say this and we're, we're, we're going to let it go. Cause this is not really a critique of the movie, but I was thinking on my way here, like, uh, this is also the story about a person of immense privilege <laughs> because like she can, she can lose her husband and ch- and child and go live in this apartment in Paris and have ice cream and coffee, which I'd never thought of as like a, that looks great. I don't even like coffee, but the idea of having ice cream and pouring hot coffee over it so, seems kind of great. Um, uh, so, 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 so she is, this is not something everyone could do. So there is almost like a fantasy element to it as well. I don't think that's a weakness of the film, but, uh, but that, that did sort of jump out to me as I was thinking today, like I could imagine somebody watching this and being like, well, this is a, this is a rich lady who's, you know, who has the, who has the, uh, the ability to do this and come back from it. And it's like, well, not everybody has that. Again, not a critique of the film, but something that I think was jumped out at me was as I was walking in this morning. Well, actually, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up, Sam, because I think that that's a deliberate choice on Kieslowski's part. And I think that part of the reason he does that, and, and Fearless actually does something similar as well. That's also a privileged character. Um, especially in the case of Blue, it enables her crisis to be truly existential. Mm-hmm. because she doesn't have to sit around worrying about how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to do that? So she has the luxury. Um, it, it, there's an irony, right? You brought up the Desert Fathers because those are people who lived in abject poverty and she lives in great affluence. And yet the two of them, the, the, from those opposite ends of the spectrum, they're both able to kind of sit in their solitary places and say, what is the meaning of life? Who am I? What is the point of existence? So I think that's one reason why it is important that she be that she have that kind of financial liberty in order to have her existential crisis. Now I think it's interesting that she um one of the objects that's interesting in this movie is when she goes back into the house the 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 house at this at the beginning of the movie, right? Um and she asks like did they clear everything out? Did they clear the blue room? Mm-hmm. Now we don't know what the blue room is. I'm assuming it's the daughter's room. Is that That's the, the assumption? Okay, yeah. yeah. Um and and there's one object left in the blue room and it is that crystal lamp and her first move is to pull on it as if she's going to destroy it. Mm-hmm. And then that's the one object she carries with it's the one physical object she carries with her cuz there's other creative objects that she carries with her in her soul and in her heart and in her mind, which we also see keep coming back to her. But there is that, um, that, that blue lamp um, that she is the one it's, it seems like the one possession she holds on to, which, which is interesting because so little of this movie is about her connection to her daughter. She almost never mentions her daughter. Um, mm. But that lamp, that lamp, I, I assume symbolizes some some sort of connection back to her daughter back to her previous her previous life and i find it interesting when the um the recorder player on the street says to her that you have to hold on to something or something like that and and it you know it makes me think about well what are the things that she holds on to well and and blue you're right there there isn't a lot of explicit reference to the daughter it's much more about about patrice um, but the daughter is associated with the color blue from the very beginning when she is holding that ra- that lollipop wrapper out the window, which is mm-hmm. which is blue. And I also think that in, a, in an interesting way, um, Julie's relationship with her mother uh, is a kind of a way of of kind of shadowing 
her relationship with her daughter because the mother has forgotten who she is and confuses mm. her with her sister. And, you know, you wonder what is, what I think it's very, it's very, I think it's very painful for Julie to think about her daughter. I think it's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of it. I think it's part of her reaction to the mice uh, the, the, and, and the babies is, and, mm-hmm. and the kids that jump into the swimming pool. I mean, all of those associations with children are, 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 painful for her she kind of shuts those out and when you think about that crash and losing a child in the crash it's almost too much to think about mm-hmm. uh, it's really literally kind of unbearable and so i think that's partly why we see the daughter through the call through the blue through the chandelier she actually ends up just finding and eating one of those lollipops um and that's i think how the daughter's presence is is indicated well, and she even says when she gets when she gets that first um, apartment, she's like, "Ken, um, I want a place with no children." With no children. That's <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And then the movie ends. I mean, one of the last things we see before we see Julie s- sitting there, you know, with the tears, is we see a child. We see a new yeah. child that's not hers, but that she is. I mean, th- that 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 she's acknowledging as like the uh, the inheritor, the heir to 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 Patrice, you know? Mm-hmm. So like she, he should have his name in his house, you know, is what yeah. she says. Um, uh, the, the scene with the mother is so interesting because there, there are so many shots of the mother watching people bungee jump and particularly very, very old people bungee yes. jumping, yes. Um, which I, I, okay. So I'm not good at this, but I'm assuming I'm going to throw, throw out things I think about with that. Right. Um, that there is this sort of, in something like bungee jumping, there is this this deep letting go, right? As you as you leave that platform, or the one time leave a helicopter, apparently is what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there is a kind of liberty in that, but but um, that just that was such a strange thing, um, and it just sort of sits there in the movie and uh, it makes you think about it. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's letting go. It's you know, it it could be a suicidal leap, right? Except you've got this cord and you bounce back. That pulls and, you back. You know, I think that's a, a visual metaphor. And then, of course, the other thing the mother is watching is the tightrope walker. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way that Julie is trying to navigate, you know, this very difficult uh, terrain. I have to say, Sam, that it's important. This is another new wave connection. The mother is played by Emanuela uh, Riva. Uh, she starred in Alain Rene's uh, Hiroshima Manamore uh, in 19, what's that, 60 or 61. And in that film, she plays a woman who is obsessed by the fear of forgetting. Mm. And I don't think that's an accidental casting choice by Kislowski. Uh, her character in that film also says the art of seeing has to be learned. Uh, and I also think about that being relevant to watching Kieslowski's films anyway. So I just think there's, it's just one, one more, one more way in which this film connects to the French new wave and how Kieslowski is paying attention to all kinds of little details. Sure. Oh, I love that. That's, that's really cool. <laughs> Another thing that that's interesting about this movie is when it is, well, it's, when it is set, it was contemporary when it, when it was set, but it's at a very unique moment in history. This is a very, this is a very, very nineties movie, early nineties movie, because you have the two, two big movements happening. You have the fall of communism. So as a history major in the nineties, I took multiple classes about post-communism because that was the most important thing happening historically in, in, Mm. you know, in the world in some ways. So you have that and you have the European union and this concert is sort of like, uh, is, is this, the, the 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 concert that's being written right is this connection to in essence both of these things right mm-hmm. the the, mm-hmm. the fall of communism and the unification of Europe and the sort of dream that uh, that comes with that and you know those are also um, well if you think about like the communist bloc right those were ties that bound those countries together that they are then liberated from mm-hmm. um, and then they are in something like the European Union they are t- they are creating new bind new new ties to bind them again so something else you know so i i think thematically that's interesting that that's also it's happening on the micro scale but also on the macro scale we're thinking about liberation but also connection yeah yeah and i should also say that um uh we we talked last week about the, the idea of uh, of the the collaborator uh, tour and um, Kozlowski was, was a great collaborator. Um, and so the music by Zbigniew Preisner, who is referred to in the film as Bandit Budemeyer, 
Um, his music is really important for Kislowski's films and especially in this film, you know, so that's all music that he's actually, you know, well, some of the music he actually had written for a previous film uh, for Kozlowski. So it's, so it's, the music is really important in terms of not only the role it plays in this film, but kind of it echoes throughout uh, Kozlowski's career. And I should also point out that the mysterious flautist on the street who somehow seems to know this concerto, which has never been published, um, he also is actually on the soundtrack in, in, the, actually orca in the actual orchestra that's playing the, uh, the concerto. Well, and what's interesting, what I love about this music, and this reminds me of another uh, a, a great movie from about 10 years before this, is a cinematic depiction of composing music. I think the movie Amadeus is some really great, great uh, versions of that. And I, I love any time in this movie when somebody's finger, somebody who knows music, when their finger touches a piece of sheet music and it moves and, and the music starts to play. And there is this great moment. Okay. So there's this great moment early on when she's being interviewed and the implication is, well, did Julie, did you write this stuff really? And you see her reading the music and then the notes go away because the thing ended and it still continues. And you're like, ah, well, she knows where this goes because I mean that that's where you start to realize well maybe she did because um cuz she she is both experiencing the music on the page but the music on the page continues beyond the page um and I and I love this the the scene where you see them actually um you see Olivier and Julie finishing the concert because um she's making suggestions and in real time we hear the music the instrumentation change to her suggestions and you're imagining well these are people who can hear what they're writing and they hear the, Oh, let's pull this in. Let's take this out. And we get to, cause as somebody who's non-musical, like this gives me, I don't know how a realistic of a depiction this is, but it gives me an insight into how people must be able to think where they can imagine what would this sound like this way? What would it sound like if I added or took this away? Uh, I get really excited during those scenes because it is so foreign to me. Yeah you, yeah, you said two things that I very much resonate with, Sam, and I'll start with the last one. That is exactly what I thought, and that is just, I am, I am non-musical to an almost uncivilized degree. Uh, and I thought, oh, so that's what happens. Like, you know, when I, when, I, when I write, when I use words, I know what a word means. I write a word and I, you know, it's in my head. And I thought, so that, that's how music works for people who can compose. They can write those notes and hear what they sound like. And the secondly, as I was about halfway through this film, I thought to myself, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad that I've said we're going to do the trilogy because I feel like we ought to stop right now and watch Amadeus next week. <laughs> that's exactly the film that came into my mind. Yeah, and of course, yeah. that's another Eastern European filmmaker. That's Milos Forman, who's a Czech filmmaker. Um, but I think you're right. I think the, those films are working very similar ways. And then I want to make one more con connection but contrast with Fearless, and that is Fearless is a visual film. Mm. A, a lot of what happens, you know, he's, he's made those drawings of what looks like a purgatory or a hell. And so that's in sense, vi the visual uh, processing is easy, a little bit easier for me to relate to than the, than the aural one is. But I'm really, I'm really happy when a film takes me kind of out of my comfort zone and says, no, you need to experience the world sonically. And so that's, that's really helpful. Now, one of the things that I love about this movie, and you've you've indicated this, is like it's not a plot-heavy movie, but in, instead, this is actually the kind of story I like, especially the kind of story I like to read, which is it is this is a collection of moments, and those moments put together point to something, say something, and some of them you could take out, and it's not like the movie would not make. So, for example, the character of Anton. You you could you could edit him entirely out of this movie, and it's not that the movie wouldn't make sense, but it would be diminished. It would be diminished for not having that, or not having, you know, the baby rats. Like you, if you or you know, if you took that out, it's like, well, it's not that the movie wouldn't make sense. It would still tell roughly the same story, but it would be diminished by not having those things. And um, so so I, I I actually really like that kind of structure because I can look at any one of those things and be like. That is a meaningful moment. Let me think about that moment. How does that um, affect the world that I'm getting pulled into? Not in a puzzle box sort of way where it's like, well, if we don't have that, we don't know about this or this. It's like, no, like, like, like the story that Antoine tells about the last words. 
you know, that sheds a kind of light on the last experience they had in the car, on their relationship. Is it essential? Well, yes, in that it makes this movie the movie that it is, but it's not like plot narrative essential. Like, well, if you don't have that, you know, it, 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 it the movie doesn't make sense. I love structures like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think the idea is how do you construct something that isn't artificially constructed? You know, it's like, how do you make something that in some respects is lifelike? Like, you know, I don't think we go through our days thinking, oh, that needed to happen at that particular time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although sometimes we look back on our days and we try to figure out, well, why did that happen? And how does that kind of fit together? So I, I think that's sort of the way that Kieslowski is playing with this. It's like it's both, it's both constructed, it's both chosen, but it's also lifelike in the, in, in, in the same way. And then... He, he plays with these mysteries of, you know, again, going back to the flute player, knowing that tune, he goes back to this idea that maybe there's, maybe there's kind of more to the logic of life than we can actually figure out. Maybe, maybe there is no great answer, but we, there's just these connections that happen in ways that we don't know how they, how they actually have happened that way. And what's a, what's a coincidence and what's a necessity. I think he's kind of playing with those, with those ideas and what's causality, what makes this happen versus, versus what makes that happen. You know, it's interesting that at the beginning of the film, that at the point at which Antoine manages to get the ball onto the peg is the very point at which the car crashes. Um, That's based actually on Kosowski's own personal experience when he was witness to a car crash um as a, as a as a teenager so it's not as they're saying that putting the the ball on the peg caused the car crash but there's a there's an interesting kind of correlation going on there uh and and the other thing that he's thinking about is well it looks like antoine was a hitchhiker gee maybe if they'd stopped for him mm-hmm. maybe the crash wouldn't have happened maybe if he hadn't been intent on putting the ball on the peg uh, rather than asking for a ride you know so yeah i, th- I think those are like these these hidden questions that are behind the action. Well, and 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 my my uh, a perfect example of this, and this is one that actually does have an A to B to C connection. But because none of the movie feels this way, you don't notice it. Is the scene where she's watching the guy get beat up, and she's looking out the window, and it's this it, this is such a crucial moment. This is one of those things, like you said, if you looked back, if she was looking back on her life, she would say, "Here's where the turn happens." But because you don't, because you're not thinking that way because the movie's not preparing you to think that way you don't notice that like that is about her battling with do i answer the door do i connect to another person and ultimately she doesn't and then belatedly she does and she's yelling down the stairs is anybody there and it's already it's too late but then that is the moment where she meets lucille or doesn't meet her but they she she's becomes aware of lucille and who Lucille is. So that is, that is actually the human connection. It's not that, but, but it comes because she has this moment of dilemma of what is my relationship to the world around me? I'm seeing this guy get beat up. Do I get involved or not? I have, I have to say the looking out and seeing the guy get beat up, it made me think about the brief scene in Eraserhead where we see somebody getting Oh beat yes. Up. But you know, Kislow, when, when she goes out on the landing and the door slams behind her, um, Kislowski said he wanted that to sound like a car crash. Mm, it's so, loud for sure. Yeah. yeah it, 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 specifically to evoke that, the car crash. So it's, I think that's, that's why that is, that is in fact a turning point for her, right? Because she fails to get out there in time to help the guy, but you just said then she get then she gets into the relationship with Lucille, which becomes really kind of kind of pivotal in terms of discovering about Patrice's infidelity because she's at the strip club with Lucille because she's responded to Lucille's cry for help because Lucille is struggling with a relationship with her father and the same way that Julie's struggling in a relationship with her mother. So that really, and if you if you think about the turning point in the film, that really is it. And it's interesting that it's symbolized by being locked out of her apartment, right? Mm-hmm. She's locked out of a space where she has chosen to try to isolate herself. And from that moment forward, she begins to get pulled back into, into life. Okay. And and interestingly, the other thing that that is a, a visual theme throughout uh, much of this movie. Uh, and it's, it's one of these things that I think works so well in film that if it was in a book, I don't think it would pull off in the same way mm-hmm. is the choice that Julie's chosen activity is swimming. Cause mm-hmm. if you think about swimming, if you've, if you've ever, if you've ever been a swimmer, like while you're swimming because of the, you're in a different state because you're in the water, your ears are usually plugged up and you don't, you, you become unaware of the world around you. Cause you're not looking. 
you're not hearing right so so it is it is this perfect escape there's even a moment when she does just like a dead man float in the water right yeah. almost yeah. you know um almost like like a like a child in the womb right mm-hmm. um but if you think about those times where she is swimming how often are they interrupted, right? They're interrupted by two things. Once, I mean, it's interrupted by Lucille. It's interrupted by those little girls, right? The thing she most wants to avoid, but mostly it's interrupted by the music, right? Because if you shut everything off, because, you know, get into that womb of the water, that's where, that's often, you know, where we see that music kind of come back to her as this thing that she cannot avoid. And I think that is such a great, um, that's such a great choice of an activity that that feels like it. It's also a solitary activity. You don't like you don't need to swim with other people because you're just swimming laps. Like having another person there is irrelevant. Um, so I think that choice is really great. And and in essence, that symbolizes so much of this movie. She's so trying to isolate herself, and it keeps getting she keeps getting pulled into both other people and art. As, uh, as somebody who used to swim almost every day, I, uh, I can appreciate uh, the, uh, the idea of being solitary in the pool because I, I hated it when there were other people in, in the pool, especially if I had to share a lane, which also, <laughs> also wants me to raise, um, uh, Sam, a, a, little, a little question I'd have no answer to and nobody I've read about the film has commented. I don't understand why she's swimming from side to side. Right. <laughs> I've been swimming the length of the pool. I don't know what that means, but it just, it kind of bugged me a little bit, but at any rate, it's just one of those, I mean, I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's not a detail without purpose. I just don't quite know what it is. Maybe it's simply um, easier for the camera to follow her. Uh, that was my assumption. You know, maybe is that's that... just it because it's hard to, you know, it, maybe he didn't want to do a tracking shot up and down the length of the pool. He just wanted to kind of get the whole thing. So yeah, maybe yeah. that's all it is. So. <laughs> that, that, that's my guess, but it, it did, yeah. that did stand out to me as well. I also wanted to understand the place where that pool was. Mm. Is that part of the apartments that they're in? Is it, is it indoor? Is it outdoor? It was very confusing because clearly there were, yeah, it it felt like they were in a hotel all of a sudden, but yes. Um, Do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah. Just a couple things. Um, One is this is maybe a small note, but I think it's interesting to me that uh, Juliet Binoche said that it took, uh, she and Kieslowski had a lot of conversations about wardrobe, about what she was going to wear. And they couldn't come up with anything. And finally, Kozlowski said, um, just wear what you wear. Hmm. So it's, so, and I think it's interesting. It's Julie and Juliet. I mean, uh, you know, I just, so anyway, so she's just wearing Julie, Juliet, Benocious every, every, every day clothes. Um, the other two other things, one other is just wanted to point out, you've already alluded to this in the swimming pool scene, but there are four, what you might call musical blackouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are, intensely subjective moments the film has a lot of subjective moments but to me the most interesting subjective moment is the beginning when uh the doctor is reflected in in julie's eye which required a special 200 millimeter lens to pull that off Hmm. Uh, but there's four times there's while she's watching the funeral there's uh, when she meets with antoine the hitchhiker when lucille notices that she's crying in the swimming pool and then when olivier uh, tells her about uh, patrice's mistress uh, so it's like time stands still. You get the swell of the music. And it's like, this is really going kind of into her head. It's like, what do you think she's thinking? The other thing I want to talk about, one more way which the film reflects life, is um, when Kozlowski died uh, unexpectedly. Um, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting story. He was going in for open heart surgery, and he was urged by a lot of people to go to a really a uh, really good hospital. And he insisted, he said, I'm an ordinary pole. I'm just going to have an ordinary operation. And he went into a hospital that really wasn't well equipped for the open heart surgery. And he died on the table. Hmm. Um, but at the time he was working on a new trilogy, uh, Heaven, Hell and Purgatory. And uh, Heaven actually was finished and was uh, was filmed by um, a German director, Tom Twyker, with Kate uh, Blanchett. Uh, but anyway, after he died, it wasn't finished. And so his his screenplay collaborator, Christoph Pisewicz, uh actually tried to complete the work in the same way that Olivier tries to complete Patrice's work. It's 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 almost too perfect. That's so interesting. Yeah. Huh. 
Well, I had one final question that you've already kind of answered. Um, now, it's interesting because I was going to ask you the double feature question. And Kozlowski actually got out in front of this because he said, well, if you want to watch this with another movie, let me give you two more to watch it with. Um, but you mentioned Fearless. I want to throw one more out there. Mm. Um, and this is a little bit stranger, but it is. But it actually there's there's there are interesting similarities. And that is the movie Memento that we watched. Mm. Right. Because that is another person dealing with the after effects of a traumatic loss. Mm. Um and he has the kind of opposite problem of I can't remember to forget you, <laughs> right? Like the only thing he can remember is the past um, where she, and, and they're, they, they both have scenes of characters burning things, trying to put the past behind them. Um, there are definitely moments of, of sort of reflection. It would be a, it might be a strange double feature, but I think that would, along with fearless, that would also work. Yeah, that would, that would. All right, Barrett, I'm going to ask you uh, what we're watching for next week, but I think you've kind of already uh, told us this. So I was trying to think of what the funniest thing you could answer to this question. And what I came up with on my walk-in is if I asked you what we're watching next from this and you said the Great Muppet Caper would be my... <laughs> but uh, yeah, what are we watching next? Uh, it's actually be for in two weeks because next week is Thanksgiving. So we'll take... Yeah, that. yeah. We're, yeah. So we're going to watch the, the next film in the trilogy. This is the order in which they were filmed and released. So the next one is White. Uh, and as I said, it's... It's sometimes considered an anti-comedy or it's a dark comedy. Uh, so don't expect a lot of laughs, um, but it has a very different tone and obviously a very different palette uh, than blue does. White. Oh, fantastic. And what is the, what is the value attached to white? Is that uh, equality? equality? Equality. All right. Yeah, yeah. So it'll, it'll be interesting to try to think about how that plays in. Fantastic. Uh, Julie, Julie Delpy is in this film. So, uh, which makes me think of another trilogy, you know, the before sunset. Yes. Uh, with Richard Linklater. So. Yes. All right, Barrett, thank you uh, for recommending this movie. It was really great to revisit. I feel like um, uh, this, this, like I said, goes on the list of like weird movies that hit me very hard because of uh, my particular, my particular faith journey that, that this movie is uh, oddly very powerful for me. And I, I really, really loved it. So thank you for recommending it. Thank you for the, the conversation. I feel like this, even brought even more light to this. And I'm so excited uh, for where we're headed. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back in two weeks to talk about three colors white in the video store. Mm-hmm.